Well, we will be in chapter 17 today, so if you have your Bibles or smart devices, that's where we'll be. We've been talking through, and let me remind of some of you, this is your first time here. We're slowly going through <laughs> Revelation. I think we'll finish by May. Uh, no, just kidding. We've said the purpose from the beginning is that this is not meant to inform you but to change you. That if this is true, then how should that affect our lives? How should this impact us? How should we act differently if these things are true? We also talked about that this will change our picture of Jesus. Interesting, on Tuesday, my wife's youth pastor came in. Now, they haven't seen each other in 40 years. And what was interesting, they had been hooking up on Facebook and talking with each other, and, and he's from Colorado, he was going to be in the Bay Area, so they arranged a time, but at the same time, unbeknownst to me, I'm talking with Bob Lehman, who mentored me, some of you know him from the marriage retreat, uh, the last time we had one, and um, his mentor was her youth pastor, which we didn't even know there was a connection there. Until, wait a minute, he's this, 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 this. So it was pretty cool on Tuesday. I got to have dinner with my mentor's mentor. And uh, that was just a, a cool deal and a cool picture and all. But we have a picture of Jesus in our house. It's Jesus riding on a white horse. I've had it up here a few times. It's a magnificent pastel picture. It's about five foot tall. He had to take a picture of it because it was just a, it's a gorgeous picture. It's not usually how we picture Jesus. And the book of Revelation has been showing us different pictures of who Jesus is. And it's going to challenge our Solomon painting, just looking in the distance, Jesus, that most of us have come to be familiar with. We also said that, that will you be radiant or ready, or are you going to be raptured and removed? Because your answer to that question is going to determine how you prepare yourself, how you prepare your children, how you prepare your grandchildren. And depending on if you're going to be here or if you have a front row seat to everything that's going to take place. We said that no matter what the world looks like today, no matter how out of control things look like tomorrow, which crazy, crazy, God still wins in the end. And we know the end of the chapter. We know how this all ends. And so that should give us encouragement that we know that. We also said that the day of the Lord will be a most glorious time and a most horrifying time for humankind. And last week, as we dealt with the, the seven bowls, that, that was horrible time for mankind. But we're going to be talking about some of the glorious time today. And last week, we talked about the divine paradox, that God is busily trying to save sinners to rescue them from his own wrath, which... He wants to save. That window is open, but as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, the window gets smaller and smaller, and as we said last week with the seals, it was closed at that point. Today, I want us to kind of focus in on really an encouraging, encouraging passage in Revelation 17, which talks about the chosen, the called, and the faithful, and how we have the final victory. We are a part of that great great entrance of Christ um, at Armageddon. Now, where we'll be at today, uh, we've said throughout this that, you know, prophecy doesn't follow a chronological order necessarily. And in the book of Revelation, it kind of goes through, then it jumps back, then it goes through, then it jumps back. We're jumping back in 17 and 18. And so it's basically coming back to here, dealing with the first three and a half years 
what chapter 17 is talking about because we're dealing with Babylon and um, the false religion or the man-made religion that is there in the Revelation 17. Now, in 1844, a guy by the name of Karl Marx, not part of the Marx Brothers, the guy who started communism, Marxism, made a statement about religion, and he said this, that the opium, that religion is the opium of the people. That basically, this man-made religion that he said all, man, all religion is man-made is a crutch for man to deal with the hardships of life. I mean, his communism is atheistic. It's interesting now that how many new politicians and young people are pushing for communism again. You know, if you don't learn from your history, you're bound to repeat it. We've heard that over and over again. And what's not necessarily being taught in our schools, and I think our parents need to have their own history lessons at home to make sure they get true history. Communism in the last hundred years has killed a hundred million people. You thought Germany Nazi was bad? That was six million. And that was horrible. But communism has killed a hundred million people, slaughtered. I don't mean, I mean, I mean slaughtered a hundred million people. Because communism is based upon suppression, and in the past, suppression means suppress the people by killing them. That's how you suppress it. Now it's just don't let them talk, you know, suppress the truth. So we need to learn the lessons from the past. And, you know, again, Karl Marx wanted to do away with all religion because it's all man-made and useless, that he said. And technically, that's true. Man-made religion is useless. God made God made religion is not. He just wrapped Christianity into every religion that there was there. Revelation 17 is dealing with a religion, a man-made religion that will basically rule the world at that time. A religious mindset, a religious thought. And so we will deal with Babylon. Now, the thing about Babylon is the most mentioned city in the entire Bible is Jerusalem. The second most mentioned city is Babylon. 300 times in the Bible, Babylon is mentioned. But in the book of Revelation, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 42 of them talk about Babylon. So one in 10 verses in the book of Revelation deal with Babylon. So it is a big deal for us to understand what Babylon is and what it represents. Now, chapter 17 represents spiritual Babylon, the false religion. Chapter 18 represents the commercial, political Babylon, and we'll deal with that next week. But Babylon and Babel, we first see this in Genesis 10 when Nimrod, uh, interesting name, I, I guess some people still name their kids Nimrod. When I was growing up, if you were called a Nimrod, that wasn't a good thing. That was not a, a trait that you'd want to be a Nimrod. And I know what Nimrod is, a mighty hunter. And I think that's why some people, I'm going to name my son Nimrod, a mighty hunter. Well, Nimrod's name means in the face of God. And that's what Nimrod was. Nimrod was constantly in the face of God. He, he was a mighty man. He established many, many cities in his day. But understand, after the flood, God said in Genesis 9, now go, populate the earth, make babies, fill the land, follow me. But they didn't do that. They all grouped together, 
And they went down to this valley, Shinar, where they established the city of Babylon. And that's where they built the Tower of Babel. Now, what's interesting about the Tower of Babel, which I, I never knew that in, in, until studying this, that the Tower of Babel literally means, the Babel means gate of God. And even though the descendants of Noah were to spread out, Nimrod said, no, you killed all my descendants, so I'm, we're going to build something that you can't destroy. Because the Tower of Babel, which is interesting, it's the reason why it says it was built with burnt bricks, which means bricks that were fired in a kiln, not just clay bricks that dried by the sun, because bricks that were burnt resisted water. And it was cemented, mortared together by tar, which is water resistant. That Nimrod was building a tower that was waterproof. Because he, I'm not going to believe you, God, that you say you're not going to flood the earth again. And so I'm going to build a, a structure that you can't harm. And I'm going to build it so high it's going to be above the waves to where it ascends to heaven itself that we will build something that we can get to heaven on our own merit. Man-made religion. Swindoll talks about the foundations for man-made religion, and he says this, that it's rejection of God's promises, it's rebellion against God's commands, it's refusal of God's will. It's faithlessness, it's disobedience, I believe it is. And... We know the end of the story. God confuses their language. They can't finish the building. And they spread out. But they don't spread out like God had told them to spread out. They spread out from the standpoint that we're still going to do our own thing and we're going to worship our own gods. You want an interesting study. Study Nimrod, his wife, and their son of how many religion has, religions have been born out of that unique situation and, 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 and this. It's a I wish I could go into it, but we don't have time to do that. The city of Babylon that most of us know about was built by Nebuchadnezzar. And it was built, it's about 55 miles south of Baghdad. Catch this. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because of the hanging gardens. It had gardens that hang through the different mountains and things that they built within the city. The city itself, the walls were 35 stories tall. 87 feet thick. Nebuchadnezzar put a moat around it because it was right next to the Euphrates River, so he diverted part of the river to create this moat so no one could defeat Babylon. He, matter of fact, even did a dry riverbed, I mean a riverbed underneath the, the city to feed, his, feed the people water, clean water and the hanging gardens. But what's interesting is that in Jeremiah 51, it predicts the fall of Babylon 60 years before. In Isaiah 45 through 47, it actually names the person who's going to destroy Babylon, King Cyrus, before he was born. 150 years before, is predicted that Babylon would fall. But Babylon is always seeming wanting to be rebuilt guy by the name of Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild Babylon. Matter of fact, built his palace on the same foundation that Nebuchadnezzar had, 
spent $500 million. But then he decided to go attack Kuwait and got into a war and got himself killed, so he'd never finished the project. But Babylon, all throughout history, has represented this false religion, represented I can do it my own way and my own religion. And Babylon will rise to become the platform of this false religion in the world. And that's what Revelation 17 is talking about, talking about this Babylon. And it's interesting how John has described who Babylon is. Verse 1 of chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Some of your translation might say harlot. Prostitution and harlot throughout Scripture has always been a metaphor for false religion, spiritual defection, apostasy. So, you know, don't you know, call them a prostitute, a harlot, because that's what Babylon was. It was trying to pull people away from the truth. And John is told, I'm going to show you the great punishment. But the first half of chapter 17 is not the punishment, it's the glory of the prostitute. For she sits on many waters, and with her kings of the earth, with her kings of the earth commit adultery, adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Whenever you see a reference to many waters, any city that was built near water was a powerful, influential city. Because it had control of the waterways. Now we'll see later, the many waters means it represents all the people, all the languages, all the nationalities. And the kings were drawn to her because of what she provided. In chapter 18, we'll see they provided the commercial side of it, but they were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Which means it's not necessarily this intoxication means to be drunk, but it's a readiness to seduce. I mean, it includes sexual immorality, obviously, but it's the seduction of power that she brings. Then verse 3 says, then the, great, then the angel carried me away into the spirit, into the desert. And there I saw the woman sitting, the, the prostitute, the harlot, sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns, who we've seen this character before. She's the Antichrist. This thing is writing that the Antichrist is supporting her. Now, what's interesting about Babylon and the world being a religious uh, movement is that many believe, and I tend to lean this way, at least right now, is that this world religion will be Islam. Uh, I mean, Christianity and Islam is almost equal as far as how many people on earth claim to be one or the other. But when you see what's going on in Turkey, when you see what the president of Turkey has been announcing, the, the caliphate that is coming, there used to be a caliphate, which was Islamic rule, Sharia law, back in 1923. In 1923, it was all disbanded. It was all cut up into pieces right after World War I. But Turkey has been announcing, and they are a power in the world. They got nuclear weapons. We gave them to them. Uh, they are a power that is calling for the new caliphate to come. It's interesting, 2023 will be the 100-year anniversary. So the, this, what is this world religion that everyone is leaning to? It seems like Islam fits the bill for that. Um, the woman here, it says the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet 
It was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things that, and the filth of her adulteries. When you see someone dressed in purple and scarlet, it, it was for richness. It was for to draw attention to you because poor people couldn't afford purple or scarlet material. And usually when scarlet is used in Scripture, it's referring to sin. Isaiah 1.18 says, though your sin is like scarlet. And so the golden cup she holds is this attractive thing that she's holding up for everyone to come and drink, but they're filled with evil John then sees in verse 5, a title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. In the time that John wrote these things, the Roman prostitutes, harlots, would wear a sign on their head which kind of advertised their business and advertised what they would perform for you and their name. And so this sign was on her head. This is what she's about. She's the mystery of Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes. She keeps birthing, birthing the abominations of the earth. And then I saw that woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony in Jesus. And when I saw this, he says, I was greatly astonished. Now, which is interesting. Why is he greatly astonished all that? Well, if you go back to verse 1, he was told, I'm going to show you what's going to happen to Babylon. I'm going to show you the destruction of Babylon. But all he's seen thus far, and now she's drunk with the blood of saints, which is the persecution. That's why this chapter is kind of covering the first three and a half years of the tribulation, when the Christians are being hunted and persecuted and killed, and she's drunk on that. She's just taken delight in it. And it's this continuous act. That's how the, how the Greek is written. And John was astonished at this. But then verse 8 the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. And what's interesting, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up. He says it again down here. That the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the, from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not. Now, if you were here for the time we we're talking about the Antichrist and the ten horns and all, and all those things, that one of the kings was mortally wounded. This is the Antichrist, was mortally wounded, and all of a sudden, for the world to see, was resurrected. Again, Antichrist imitating the things of Christ. And so the entire world saw this, which 100 years ago, yeah, that's, not, that's not possible. But guys, I've been, into, I've been to some of the poorest places in the world. And one thing is common, whether rich or poor, everyone has a satellite dish on their hut and a cell phone in their pocket. It doesn't matter where I've been. I mean, I've been on a hilltop in Nicaragua and in, in Lesotho, Africa, and they have their cell phones. And they may have four garage doors in Mexico slapped together for a house, but there's a satellite dish there in the corner too. So it's easy to see how the world will be astonished at these things. But Here's the imitation again. Who once was, now is not, and will come. Who once was, now is not, and yet to come. Because that is said of Jesus in, in Revelation 1.8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to 
The Antichrist will constantly try to pretend to be the Jesus, which will draw attention to himself. And let's not be a, that they were astonished that when they saw this, because Matthew 24, 24 says, for false Christ and false prophets, notice that that's plural. That's YouTube false prophets now. There will be constantly false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were even possible. That they will be astonished because just the world power. They're seeing this. This must be the Jesus. Look, he rose from the dead. Verse 9 says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. This calls to pay close attention. And that's back to, are you going to be ready and ready? That's back to when you see these things taking place. When you are aware of these things, not getting caught up in fake news, not getting caught up in that. I I was very, this week I'm going, how much news do I watch and read? I don't watch anything particularly, but I read everything. And how much Bible do I read if I were to match that up? I'm going to tell you something. If you're reading more news than you're reading Bible, no wonder you're depressed. No wonder you're down. No wonder this is a horrible place and everything else. It better be equal or above that. Because, guys, you're not going to, it's never going to change. News has never changed. It's just more of it and more ways to find it, the bad stuff. It calls for a mind of wisdom, he says, to truly understand this. And he's going to get into something that's pretty, pretty weird here. He says, now, the seven heads are seven hills. Mountains are always important in the Scripture. Um, when a city is said, it's set on seven hills. Rome was set on seven hills. Constantinople was set on seven hills. It always means a majestic, majesty, a, a powerful, influential city that these seven heads, these kings, these seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. Now, just one of those things, like, why just that feeling, five have fallen? It seems like a riddle from Lord of the Rings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. Now, it's pretty much agreed that everyone that I studied and read is that the five that have come mean there's been five kingdoms who have come before. And that represents Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. The one that is is the one John was sitting in, that's Rome. Rome is now the power when John was writing there is one to come, and that one will arise in the future, and that's Babylon. There have been many nations who have tried to take over the world. They have not lasted very long at all. Those, these ones last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Babylon will say it will only be around for a short time. The Bible says an hour, but we know how hours and minutes work with God. He's not bound by that. And then it says the beast who, in verse 11, the beast who once was and now is not, is that eighth king. Because out of the seven, one of them immortally wounded, all of a sudden is healed, and now he rises to prominence as the eighth king. And he belongs to the seven and is going to his destination. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings 
along with the beast. So you have this power. You have Babylon who's sitting on seven hills, who has the influence, the religious fervor to call the world unto itself. Basically, you have the original belief of what Bab the Tower of Babel created. One religion, one world government, one, one language, one understanding. And throughout time, this has been tried. I mean, after World War II, we're establishing the United Nations, and the United Nations will be set in place that whenever there's a war, the United Nations will come in and squelch it. Has that happened? Uh, it's not fulfilled. The World Bank or the World Council of Churches, being that all religions and churches believe the same thing, we ought to work together and be one. There's always this press into this, guys. It never works because the only peace that can be brought is by Jesus in the first place. But verse 13 starts the double tragedy, if you will, for Babylon. It says in verse 13, they, being those kings, have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the Lamb. Now it's going from chapter 17, as reflecting on chapter 19, to the Battle of Armageddon and the return of Christ. They'll be against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he's the Lord of Lords and he's the King of Kings. He's, not, he's the big K, not the little K that these other guys are. And with him will be... His called, his chosen, and his faithful. I like that sentence. His called, his chosen, and his faithful. The chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen says, For many are invited, but few are chosen. Much like the song Kaylee sang, you say, some of you need to understand, you have been chosen by God. When this world throws something at you, you have been chosen by God. And sometimes the devil wants to come and say, no, you're not worth anything. You're not worth anything. That needs to be written on your mirror so when you get up, that's the first thing you see. I'm chosen. You're called. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Guys, there are a lot of things that were happening in my life when, on, in November when I sat in a college library and Mike comes over and shares the gospel with me. But I was being set up. I had moms and grandmothers praying for me. If you've got a grandma praying for me, you are, it's doomed. It's going to happen. Understand. You've been set up and so many things took place. You may be here this morning and you still haven't accepted Jesus Christ. Well, I know you're close because you're sitting in a church. Or you're watching on TV. Again, God draws. God is doing that. You, you didn't decide this on your own. I think I'm going to be a church person today, and I'm going to go find a Jesus and follow him. I mean, that's not how it works. Because who gave you the thought in the first place? You've been called. The last one is faithful. And if Revelation has demonstrated anything, it's the patient endurance. So read this in Revelation 14, 12. But this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful. They're followers, which means if you're following, 
going somewhere. Jesus is taking you on a trip. Where are you following him? And that's the call, to be faithful to Jesus, to obey his commands. And that's who's coming behind Jesus on the wild horse. Now, you know, we're, we're riding behind him, and we're excited unless we're still down there on earth, you know, faithfully serving him through all this stuff. But, hey, we're going to be riding. Some of you, I've never ridden a horse. Well, you're, you may be looking like this on the horse, but you're going to become, and you don't get to really do anything because Jesus takes care of the whole matter. Uh, we, we don't get to fight. It's not going to be, you know, nothing like that on our part. It'll be Jesus, but we get to participate. says, then the angel said to her, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits, this harlot, are the peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And the beast with the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Now this is, I would say this is cool, but it's not that cool. It's pretty much right off the word picture. They'll hate the beast. The beast and the ten, uh, sorry, the ten, the ten or saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin. Now, Babylon is the world religion at the time. Bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I couldn't show that artwork up here. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty vivid picture here. Because this world religion will be set, organized, pulling people in, and if it's Islamic, Shia Raleigh Allah or whatever, and all of a sudden the beast will turn because the beast wants to be worshipped. Will turn and destroy Babylon and set himself up. And that's why at the three and a half year mark, you have the abomination of desolation being set in the temple where all worship is directed to the devil. And so this great religion this great following, whatever it may be, is being destroyed by the devil. And he is set up to be worshipped. Which really takes us into chapter 18 about the destruction of the commercial side, the political side of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. What I love about verse 17 is that it says, For God has put it into their heart accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's people are overthrown. Whose agreement are they? God has put it in their heart. All this is God. I mean, guys, drumbeat, if anything you get from me and all and everything you listen to me, God's sovereignty. He is in control. He's not lost the keys to the loony bin, even though it looks like it sometimes. He is in control. God is wins. He wins because it's his plan, his story. He writes the ending to it. Why are you fearing? Why are you worried? He's got this. And we get to play a part. Just a ride because Jesus is at the front with robes dipped in blood. That's a neat picture for you. Maybe I'll take a picture for the class one day. The question we keep asking 
This is all true. How are you planning for this? Well, Tim, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I don't know either. I just know it's a day closer than it was yesterday. And I also know that if I was living during World War II, I'd have thought the same exact thing. Because it seems like there are things that have taken place that just push that reality closer and closer. So am I going to be radiant in my attitude? And for some here, the question is, will you be a part of the chosen one? Will you be a part of those who will be lighting the way? The only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. My sin separates me from Him. And so I need to repent and ask for forgiveness from him. The thing that God's been calling people throughout the book of Revelation, let's repent and repent and repent. And when we choose to, when he forgives us and he puts us on the cross, remind me of my sin, God. Remind me of my sin. Remind me of the truth of my sin. I am part of the chosen one. And it's not a prayer that does it. decision in your heart that today I will choose to believe in my sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ and I will follow him. So I want to pray for us who are believers first and then I want to give any, uh, anyone an opportunity right here or watching online. So if you don't know Jesus, today's your day. So let's pray. Father, for those here who've made a commitment to you, whether recently or a long time ago, Lord, you're calling us to be faithful. You've already called us. You've already chosen us. May we live out the faithfulness of that calling. May we truly take these words to heart and realize that if this is all true, how should we then live? What should our actions be excluding in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our relationships? Father, help us. And if there are those here who have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, you never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, heart you made him the Lord of your life, the leader of your life, then pray this prayer with us. We're going to all read this together. On the screens again, it's not the words. It's an intention in the heart. God in heaven, you sent your son Jesus to save us from our sins. You're both stern and kind. My sin has separated me from you. And I believe that Jesus Christ died to take away my sin. Today I ask you to forgive my sin and to come into my life. Please begin to direct my life. Make me one of your chosen, called, and faithful followers. Give me the faith I need to hold on. I receive you into my heart this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, if anyone has prayed that prayer, first time. I pray that you'd fill them with your spirit. I pray that they make contact with a, another believer or with us at this church to say they did that so we can get them the help and encouragement they need to live for you. Father, we thank you for this day. You got us dressed, got us here, which means you're, you're not done with us yet. Help us take advantage of the time you've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let's go. Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org.